0: Greetings, Welcome to the podcast Byzantium and Friends. I'm Anthony, your host. In the past decade or so, it has become, unfortunately, easier to imagine how many East Romans felt in the Paleologan period. This is the last couple of centuries of the independent history of the East Roman state. I'm referring especially to the last century and a half. There's huge wealth inequality, uh, elites who seem to be concerned more about themselves and their international connections and opportunities than their professed interest to the common good. The political system seemed corrupt and detached and unaccountable. There was a looming sense of decline and of imminent catastrophe or of a catastrophe that was bound to come sooner or later about which no one could seem to get their act together well enough to respond. And meanwhile, Roman society is torn apart by culture wars. Culture wars about things that seem to us incredibly trivial. Like how could people be fighting about this? Like mystical light seen during prayer, or union with the Catholic Church stumbling over you know, a couple words or parts of words in a creed and, you know, minor things. There were some serious things too, but there were also a lot of minor things that people were fighting about. You think, is this really what you're choosing to, is this the hill you're going to die on while all of that is going on? You know, I get a similar sense with a, a lot of what's going on today. If you read the news and you compare it to, you know, what the problems we're actually facing, there seems to be a big discrepancy. Anyway, the Paleologan period is, you know, pretty grim and kind of depressing. uh, Even though it had some high points and this is something worth dwelling on. In fact, I recently had to write the history of this period and I had to make some choices about how to represent it. And I wasn't going to dissemble um, the, the decline just because we're supposed to avoid that term and its connotations. It was very real. But at the same time there were some East Romans who were trying to find a sh- sort of shred of dignity amidst all of that and do what they could uh, to carry on. And one of those was the Emperor Manuel II Palaiologus, who lived through some of the worst period uh, from the middle of the 14th century to around 1425. So I tried in writing the history of the Palaiologan period, to find the people, the moments, the efforts that many were making to retain a semblance of East Roman Orthodox dignity in all of that chaos and decline and, and, and fear of collapse. And he was probably the prime exhibit. So my thinking about this topic has been shaped by the work of two colleagues. One of them is Cecily Hillsdale, and you can hear my conversation with her in episode 18. So her wonderful book on this topic explores how Manuel and others use diplomacy and differential diplomacy, that is knowing what different audiences want to hear or receive from you in order to continue to project a power, the prestige of you know, Constantinople and uh, Roman Orthodox culture in that age. The second is Sidençelik, whom we've also had on the podcast before, though talking about a different topic. Uh, This is episode 12 on Byzantine studies in Turkey. But her academic focus for years has been Manuel II and, in fact, his his written works and his self-representation in those works. Now, Manuel II happens to be the Roman emperor from whom we have the most Written material, um, especially kind of autobiographical and self-referential uh, texts, most Roman historians will tell you that's probably the Emperor Julian, living 11 centuries earlier. Uh, but in fact, it's Manuel II. It, it kind of depends on how late you think Roman history goes, but uh, you know all of us know how late it goes, and Manuel is definitely part of it. So he wrote about most aspects of his life. Uh, though some he didn't, and we kind of talk about those in the conversation as well. Manuel's life experiences were incredibly diverse, let's say. Um, he went from being um, on the inside of the family to an outcast of the family to governing Thessaloniki and Constantinople and then in exile and back again, having to campaign in Asia Minor with the Ottoman Sultan to you know to help the Ottoman Sultan defeat his rivals in Asia Minor then traveling in Western Europe, going as far as France and Britain in search of aid, while Constantinople was being besieged by that same sultan at Bayezid. And through it all, he was writing these literary works that were sort of ref- reflecting on his position. And I would say more broadly on, on his identity, um, on, on what we have come to call Byzantine identity, but was for him very Roman, very Hellenic, very Orthodox. When he was in the West, he wrote in Greek in defense of Orthodoxy. When he was in the East, serving under Bayezid, he wrote about, you know, Islam and Orthodoxy and what uh, separated the two. And yeah, Aristophanes was one of those things, you know, knowledge of Aristophanes. So he's drawing also on his classical paideia. So he was a person who, in very difficult circumstances, was always trying to articulate, you know, what was so special um, about. Not just himself, but his identity, which he shared with many, many of his uh, compatriots. Now, he had many disputes with them, too. Uh, this, again, was an age of culture war, and so he was involved in, in some of it. Uh, but I think, if you, especially if you read Siren's careful analysis of all of his different works, um, you will come away thinking that, uh, well, he did so with a certain amount of dignity, which was perhaps all that he could do in those circumstances. One thing also to keep in mind here is that Manuel wrote in a very difficult form of Attic Greek. I have stared at some of his sentences <laughs> for long periods of time trying to decipher them. So uh, so Siren's work is truly a, a feat. The book is called Manuel II Paleologos, a Byzantine Emperor in a Time of Tumult. And here then is my conversation with Siren. Hello, Siren. Welcome back to the podcast.
1: Hello, Anthony. Thank you for having me again.
0: So you were, yeah, you were one of my first guests way back. And I remember we were talking about, oh, we'll do a podcast when your book comes out. And for you, I think the book was still in production. It must have seemed like "Ah, that'll be in forever. And I was working on the Early parts of my history and Manuel II just also seemed like we'll never get to that. will never happen. Nevertheless, you know, that your book came out. I got to Manuel the Second. Uh, so this is a great moment to bring it together and and talk about him, uh, and your book. Um, and uh it's it's uh, I think the second book on the podcast that I had a discussion with someone who was working on a book. I think it was Elena Elena Beck, yes, and she was working on a book, and but it wasn't yet there. And then you know the book was finished, it was published, it came out. We did a podcast on it. So you're the second one of those. Uh, so I really like that the podcast has that kind of depth now. Anyway, sorry I'm rambling. Um, so why don't you start by telling our audience who Manuel II Palologos was and why you chose to write. Uh, your dissertation, and then a full-length monograph on him.
1: Okay. Uh, Manuel II is one of the last emperors of Byzantium, uh, and he was actually the father of the last two emperors as well. And uh, he had quite an eventful life, as the title of my book suggests, The Emperor in a Time of Tamal. So even as a young man, you know, he endured lots of civil strife within his family, lots of fighting for the throne, also after he became the sole emperor. Uh, lots of conflicts with the Ottomans. Actually, his reign witnessed no less than three sieges by the Ottomans. Mm. Uh, as uh, later on, perhaps we will touch upon, he traveled to Europe to seek help. And not only that, uh, he was also a very, very prolific author. So he wrote many, many uh, works in various genres, like letters, orations, poems, theological works, philosophical works, sermons, so on and so forth. And uh, I found him to be a very talented author as well. And uh, of course, because he was an author, he also had a wide network of Byzantine literati around him at the time. So whoever was an important Byzantine thinker or author at the time, like Demetrios Kidones, Manuel Hrizoloras, he was also in contact with them, collaborated with them on some of his works, etc. Uh, so naturally, I find him to be a very colorful life. Andrew, I think his biography was very exciting. Uh, I actually, uh, for the first time, met with Manuel when I was an undergrad. Uh, I wanted to be a Byzantinist, so I had taught myself Greek, and I was translating whatever bits of text I could find. And, of course, one of my uh, main sources was the Byzantine uh, prose anthology of Nigel Wilson. Mm. And uh, this one actually has an excerpt uh, from Manuel, uh, his letter to Manuel Hrizolovas from London. And it was the first time I had you know, read it. I had actually translated it into Turkish. Of course, I found it terribly difficult, but it had intrigued me so much. And at the time I couldn't also access the full letter collection by George Dennis. So I couldn't read it. I couldn't also access uh, John Barker's wonderful book. Uh, and a few months later, I ended up also translating Manuel's Expresses on a Tapestry in Paris, edited and translated also by John Davis. And I also found this text incredibly difficult for the time being, and uh, but also fascinating. So uh, I already had decided that I would do my MA in Birmingham, and actually studying the letters of Manuel II was one of my options. Uh, To make a long uh, story shorter, uh, when I went to Birmingham, uh, I discussed several options with my late supervisor, Dr. Macrides, and then we both decided that uh, working on the letters of Manuel would be a good option, and I worked on their literary style, its networking, etc., small MA dissertation. And of course, I did want to do a PhD. I always wanted to be a historian. And as soon as I set foot in Birmingham in that fall, of course, we were talking about PhD applications, funding, etc. And uh, I needed to come up with a PhD topic too in order to be eligible for funding. And I already uh, by that time had checked out Manuel's letters and other works from the library. I had read Professor Barker's wonderful book and I had become really sort of a Manuel person. And I was saying, how about I do a big, uh, you know, new book on Manuel, new biography, but not like Professor Barker, but from a literary angle. And then so uh, my topic officially, uh, you know, shaped as being a new biography of Manuel II. And I also chose this topic, not only because of Manuel, uh, because I realized that since he had such an eventful life, contacts with Western Europe at the same time, with Ottomans, uh, I, had to, uh, I was going to have to use like a variety of sources, which would be entertaining and nice. Uh, I would have to deal with many different topics, politics, daily life, a bit of architecture, mm. I don't know, lots of texts. So I thought that this would be a very satisfactory PhD dissertation.
0: Yeah, um, so you mentioned a letter that Manuel wrote from London and also a work that he wrote in in Paris. So you're alluding to this famous journey to the West that he went uh, right in the late uh, 14th, early 15th century to find um, aid for Constantinople, which was besieged. I find it interesting that you and Manuel are from the same place, and you also traveled to Britain and studied there. So there's very interesting parallels between you and him that-
1: I hadn't thought of this before, actually.
0: <laughs> um, anyway, we'll get into those later uh, if you want. Um, now, Manuel has received an excellent biography by John Barker, um, and you got to know uh, John, right, in, in, in those years. Tell us a little bit about um, your interactions with him.
1: Well, of course, uh, his biography, I have to say, is an excellent work. Uh, So, uh, okay, I did write a later and second biography on Manuel, but I, I mean, I really admire Professor Barker's work. Uh, now, I did uh, start corresponding with him when I was a junior fellow in Dumberton Oaks, and I have to admit, up until that point, I was always a bit afraid. I was afraid that Professor Barker would be unhappy that I was writing a new biography, that maybe he would find me too young, he wouldn't like me. But I finally did introduce myself to him because also many people around told me he's not like this at all. And he's Mm -hmm. a gentleman, very supportive person. I wrote to him and he replied to me like within hours saying how happy he was. He always wanted to see a new book on Manuel II. He wished me all the best. And after that, we stayed in correspondence. So I would, of course, write to him on important occasions. We spoke about the book. I informed him of all the Progresses in my academic life, like fellowship, jobs, articles, uh, the progress on the book. He read my article on the dialogue with the Persian, sent me like his uh, comments on that. And uh, although we hadn't met face to face up until that point, I did start feeling very close to him. Not only because we had worked on the same topic, uh, but he was such a warm and encouraging person. And he was also extremely funny uh, very witty. like he had soft yes. jokes in his emails. It was brilliant. Yes. And finally, uh, around the same time that we were having our first podcast with you, I was at Harvard at a postdoc. And that year, uh, we had the Byzantine Studies Conference in Wisconsin. And already Professor Barker and I had made plans to meet there in person. And he was telling me that my health is not good, but I hope, you know, you and I will uh, be able to meet them. Uh, we were supposed to meet at the conference uh, that day and then later see each other outside the conference. But unfortunately, when he was coming, uh, he got sick uh, on his way to the conference. But again, uh, to, you know, make this long uh, story short, I did visit him in the hospital. Uh, he was very lucid and we did speak a lot about a lot of things like Manuel II, our shared love for history, for music, many, many other things. and. Uh, As a present, he also gave me his copy of, uh, you know, many offerings, his own author's copy of Manuel, the second book, and many, many other things. And we made plans, one, he's better, you know, he's back home. We could do like Skype or Zoom calls, but unfortunately, uh, we lost him uh, two days later. And uh, of course, I was delighted uh, that I finally got to meet him face to face, but uh, his loss was, of course, uh, really, really sad.
0: Yeah, he was a lovely person. And um, I think your books are complementary. I, I you know, I, I, I used them together uh, when I was working on that period and because they illuminate different parts of Manuel's life in different Completely, ways. Completely, yes. Yeah. And uh, I first met uh, John Barker at uh, the Business Studies Conference in 1994 uh, when it came to Ann Arbor, Michigan. I was a student there, and it was literally one block from my house. <laughs> And so I went. I remember the first night uh, when all the professors were meeting. I think it was a board meeting or something like that. But but other people were were, were invited, and there were some people who were having a pretty serious fight. Uh, and I, I, I of course at the time I had no idea what it was about or why they were you know so angry at each other. And um, John Barker stood up at the end and he. He's very eloquently in a very witty way that, you know, he he, he calmed everybody down and got them to talk again. And it's wow, an impressive feat. Um, but anyway, yes, um, it, it would have been great to have him on the podcast too, but uh, started too late. Uh, so let's go back to your work and your interest in Manuel and his period. Um, so why don't you tell us a little bit about the state of the Uh, empire, and I'm putting those words in quotation marks, um, under Manuel, and what are some of the main challenges that he was facing, and then we'll sort of contextualize your work in there.
1: Yeah, I mean, as you just mentioned, it is empire in quotation marks only, and this is one of the major problems of his reign, uh, that essentially uh, the Byzantine empire has now been confined to an extremely small territory, Constantinople. You know, from time to time, the city of Thessaloniki, a bit of land in the Moria uh, and lots of political problems, uh, pressure from the Ottomans and, uh, you know, significant Ottoman expansion uh, under Manuel's reign as well. Uh, Of course, uh, because now the Venetians and the Genues were extremely influential in Byzantine economy, uh, the Byzantines also had to deal with them. Yes, they also, you know, received significant support from the Venetians and the Genoese. But of course, they had lots of political conflicts as well. Uh, And of course, when you start losing that much territory and, you know, you also lose the control of your trade, your economy, uh, of course, you also start having lots of very big economic problems, like uh, the state is poor. This is also reflected very well in Manuel's writings. Mm -hmm. There is problem with the taxation. Uh, The regular people, especially the poor people, are increasingly getting poorer and poorer. There are social problems because of that polarization between the rich and the poor. Of course, again, social problems because of the civil war, people supporting, uh, uh, you know, uh, other candidates like Andronikos IV or John VII. Uh, Again, uh, problems caused by theological controversies, Uh, you know, like these conversions to Catholicism, different stances towards the church union. Again, you know, the problem of Palamism. I mean it was more or less settled in Manuel's time, but it still was a source of contention for the public. Uh, so it was a very sort of hard to say time of troubles.
0: Oh yes, as many troubles as you can imagine like
1: this. They're oh, yes. all
0: packed in there. Yeah. Uh, and he had like virtually no army, no money. Nothing. Um, no, but he had his city and he had his throne and his crown and, and literary ability, um, and lots of friends and supporters. Um, So let's talk about what you've done with Manuel, what your book is not exactly uh, a traditional biography, though, it does follow the course of his life in a chronological fashion. So what did you hope to accomplish in this book, or what was your approach that makes it different from a traditional biography, like the one that John wrote? Yeah, I
1: mean. Already, first of all, because Professor Barker had covered this political biography so excellently, I don't think that there was the need to do a second one. Uh, second, my interests as a historian, as you can tell, are very different. Uh, I chiefly wanted to focus on Manuel as a literary figure. So I wanted to analyze his whole corpus, all of his writings, You know, discuss his metaphors, imagery a little bit, especially study his self-representation. Uh, trace some of his like philosophical and theological thoughts and I also wanted to focus on Manuel as a person so I didn't want to only speak about wars or like policies uh, civil strife I don't know economy taxation but I wanted to uh, also sort of bring out Manuel as much as I could as an actual human being like relationship with his family family members friends, foes, also to try to envision his daily life, which is also possible because he did, uh, you know, refer to his daily life in his writings. Of course, again, through the lenses of a self-representation technique. Uh, But I also wanted to discuss things like his hobbies like hunting, his travels to Europe, not only what uh, in what sort of negotiations he was engaged in, but like the sights he would have seen, the food he would have eaten, what was like a typical day for him at the Vlaharna Palace. So this these were the sorts of things that I wanted to analyze and to highlight in my biography. Uh, so uh, my work, as you said, I do call it a biography, But it is not a traditional biography in the sense that it, you know, narrates political events, et cetera. Uh, But I envision this sort of like an uh, amalgam of a literary study, like a literary biography, uh, you know, with a touch of personal biography and, you know, supplemented by uh, discussions of Manuel's politics and reign. Uh, so I would say that this is actually an amalgam of many things. At least, at any rate, this is what I think. And uh, from point to point, of course, although I did follow a chronological approach, uh, starting with his birth, you know, his childhood, etc., ending with his death, I do also have like uh, digressions at certain topics. Uh, for example, in my, let's say, chapter six, I also discuss Constantinople in Manuel's time in a few uh, brief paragraphs, just so, you know, flesh out his world. Or like uh, in chapter eight, I have a digression on his uh, life at the Vlaharna Palace, Uh, things like that.
0: Yeah, what enables you to do that is the fact that he wrote so much and that he touches on all of those aspects of his life that you just mentioned in his own works. In fact, I think there's only one other uh, emperor um, we can do this with, and that's Julian. Uh, and because Julian also was a prolific writer, and he died much younger. Um, his corpus is much smaller, and you know, a thousand years earlier, more than a thousand years earlier. Uh, but it's also relentlessly autobiographical, also in that he's always commenting on his own experiences and his past and his reactions to things. And and Manuel is doing the same. Uh, and it's because that Manuel draws attention to um, his own reactions and his experiences, um, and and and. Fashions these images of himself in all of these different contexts that you can write this book. It's not something that you can do for most emperors, right? Um, even like uh, take Leo VI, who also produced a significant body of writings, but they're not about himself. Like he rarely ever mentions himself or any, you know, these kinds of tidbits that you can um, structure a sort of self representational biography around. So, why do you think that Manuel wrote so much um, about so many issues of his personal life? At every about every phase and problem that he faced uh, during his life, so what was he trying to accomplish with all of this uh it's It's very rare for an emperor to do this
1: I think i mean uh it as a, again is an amalgam of many reasons uh first of all, he of course like Julian, Leo the and other authors is also using his writings as a political tool uh, so these are not uh you know like letters or like novels or you know or These are not pieces like modern literature only written because for, you know, solely for the purposes of aesthetic. Uh, So, of course, uh, almost all of his works, even his theological works, are filled with, you know, political messages. Uh, You know, his self-representation is very dominating. He's always trying to legitimize his rule, defend some of his more problematic decisions, defend himself against his critics and against his competitors. He is always, uh, you know, trying to construct this self-portrait as this dutiful, blameless emperor who is totally devoted to his craft. Uh, And, you know, he's always hindered by the difficulties. Uh, So, of course, naturally, one of the reasons why he wrote all of these pieces is for uh, issues of ideology and for sending out political messages. Of course, he also networked with all of the Byzantine literati at the time. And we know, uh, both through other sources and from his writings, that these were, you know, sometimes read aloud in theatres, in literary gatherings. They were sent to other people. So these texts did circulate around. And this, of course, was a very important feature of his work. Uh, of course, some of his work uh, is also written for specific purposes, like the funeral oration, for example, is written on the occasion of the death of his uh, brother, uh, mm-hmm. Theodore Dospat of Morea. Or uh, works like the, uh, his Mirror of Princes or the Seven Attico-Political Orations. Again, of course, all of this is again filled with political messages, but these were also probably uh, conceived as tools for the education of his son and heir, John VIII. But I would also say that he wrote so much uh, because he enjoyed generally writing for his own sake and he was a talented author and I think he knew it. Uh, So, uh, of course, I do acknowledge this political uh, side of his writings and I think I deal with quite a lot in my own book. But I also uh, wouldn't want uh, Manuel's writing and authorship to be seemingly like one dimensional. Mm -hmm. I also think he wrote because he liked it. Uh, He, I think, generally cared about textual aesthetics, enjoyed writing, enjoyed experimenting with different genres. He was good at it, at least this is what I think. And I think he also was well aware of it. So I think it was like the perfect combination. Because, yes, many other emperors who were especially brought up as princes received excellent educations. And Manuel is not our only author emperor in Byzantium, but also other emperors, many of them didn't write at all. So I think it was a combination of talent, interest and, you know, this political aspect of things.
0: Yes. And it's important to stress that he wrote in many different genres. Yes. Yes. Um, So much so, like, so you mentioned a funeral oration, and we have his letters, and he wrote some, like, sort of quasi-philosophical dialogues, uh, you know, one on marriage, one about Islam, one about sort of Catholicism and orthodoxy, and ecrases and rhetorical works, and on and on and on. It's almost like he was, like, he enjoyed trying his hand at different, you know, genres, and, and... He, he is a very gifted author too, and a very difficult one to read at times too. So yes, <laughs> you must, yes, you must have some, you know, war trauma from or whatever.
1: Yes, I did, especially in my early years as a PhD student, but yeah. I found him well worth the efforts.
0: That's, it's rough. Yeah. So tell us, um, I mean, just to give a, our audience a sense of him as an author. So what's like one of, your favorite uh, images or metaphors or whatever that he uses somewhere in his work, something, some, even a small thing that you just really liked.
1: OK, uh, I really enjoy Manuel's uses of water and sea metaphors and imagery. Uh, now, I also stress this in my book. This is, of course, not unique to Manuel. Uh, using like a sea and water metaphors was very commonplace in uh, Byzantine literature. We have many topo, like commonplaces relating to that. But when I analyzed them as an author, I did find that Manuel displays a particular fascination with water and sea images. It is not like something that occurs once or twice somewhere. It is something that he's especially interested in. And I find that he also transcends the usual commonplaces. Yes, of course, the usual, you know, ship of the state, you know, speaking mm. about like stormy seas to describe troubles, he of course uses these commonplaces too, but he also has very interesting descriptions too. For example, in his discourse to Kawasilas, uh, he writes this when he was exiled by his father because he lost Thessaloniki in 1380s. Uh, he writes to his correspondent Cavasilas that he hasn't drowned, but he's merely floating on the surface of the water. Uh, or when he's uh, speaking about like the calm seas and how he's uh, longing for like a respite from all these troubles he's describing it very very eloquently uh, or he's sometimes using very interesting uh, ideas that I couldn't find a precedent for mm-hmm. uh, like he's saying that uh, this is as futile as sitting at the one end of a ship and that you tie a rope to another end of the ship and you try to you know pulled back the boat so uh, his sea metaphors and water metaphors were the things i really enjoyed in his writings but also generally i find his imagery to be vivid this is something else i enjoy for example in his dialogue with a persian or, like his discourse on dreams to Asanes, he has these descriptions of these nice fireplaces giving you warmth, you know, uh, setting out the atmospheres. Uh, the dialogue with a Persian, this uh, dialogue on Islam and Christianity, which I think is my favorite work by Manuel, is again filled with very interesting, like character portrayals, like his Medevis, for example. This Islamic uh, uh, scholar with whom he was conversing is so well fleshed out. Okay, he says yes, he's a barbarian. He's not like us. Of course, there is only a certain point as to he could comprehend all these conversations. But he also uh, portrays himself as a witty man, gentle host, respectable man, somebody who likes God, you know, who lives like a scholar and a philosopher simply. And he also describes in detail their jokes, their dinners. And at parts, I mean, I feel that the dialogue with a Persian reads almost like a modern novel. So that's another thing, for example, I like about Manuel, that his character portrayals are well thought of and really well fleshed out.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting approach because that work is usually studied from the standpoint of, you know, Byzantine perceptions of Islam and, and polemical arguments and all of that. And scholars find, oh, well, the arguments are all well known. He's just kind of recycling them. Uh, which for the most part is true, but you you found this sort of personal touch that he infuses into the whole thing.
1: Oh, yes. I mean, when I compared it with other Islamic dialogues produced at this time by his uh, uh, friends like Macarios Makres, his father, Rionis Kantakouzinos, uh, it is really different in terms yes, of character portrayal and literary style.
0: I love the one, wait, was it you who pointed this out where he mentions like Aristophanes, the, the comedian at one point? Yes,
1: yes, it's, yeah
0: and and, and he makes some, yes he makes an aristophanic joke but i think he also says something like, but but you you wouldn't know who that is right <laughs> like, no he like doesn't that. say like,
1: that he uh refers to aristophanes's play Velt, saying that also the prophet would say after just like Velt. and the midair replies we don't know aristophanes okay and <laughs> You, as a Byzantine reader and audience, you, of course, automatically understand he doesn't get the job because he's not familiar with this Hellenic pedia. Yes. Whereas, of course, Manuel and his audience, they would have found this terribly funny.
0: Yes, I, I found that a, a recurring theme in his works, that he's constantly playing up this sort of the Hellenic or the classical heritage as a point of identity for himself and his circle and his audience and any subjects more broadly. Like we may have lost our empire, but we still have that. And we can still make Aristophanic jokes that nobody else gets. Um, <laughs> you, you know, my favorite moment, it was that one, until I came across, I was reading the um, the uh, Acts of, uh, one of the accounts of the Acts of the Council of Ferrara, Florence. And there's this point where his son, John VIII, who, who went to Italy at the, at the, to the council, and he's telling the Italians, Something he wants to quote Homer and he says, Well, we have a poet among us named Homer, and he has this line about, Well, it's getting late and we should go and eat or something. <laughs> <laughs> I love the fact that he has to say, Well, you know, he has to explain like who Homer is to these. It's how, anyway, I don't know if he's trolling them. <laughs> like, yeah, that's like,
1: that would be taking things a little too far, I think.
0: Yeah. No, um, like I know you know who Homer is, but we're the only ones who have access to the original. So, yeah, anyway. Funny. All right. So Manuel is one of those authors who, and he reminds me in this respect, of a lot of uh, Michael Pselos, right? The 11th century, whom you always suspect that in some way or another, he's talking about himself or is like autobiographizing, even if it's not overtly on the surface, like he's, he's building up an image of himself with almost everything he's talking Well, not everything, but most of the things he's talking about. So would you say that? I mean, were you like on the lookout for uh, like indirect autobiographical references? Why is he doing that?
1: Yeah, I certainly agree. And I think this case also applies to uh, Manuel. So yes, most of his work is autobiographic. Uh, So even if he's not directly speaking about himself or an event, there are always, uh, I mean, he never lets you forget, I would say, who the author is, that it is an emperor writing. And of course, there are always like these sort of subtle references. Uh, And I think the reason he's doing is that is in order to, you know, uh, send out all these political messages, uh, offer this uh, self-representation to his audience as this beautiful, but also gifted a multi-talented emperor who can, you know, engage in theological debates, understand philosophy, write beautifully, give beautiful orations, but also accompany the Ottoman sultan on a campaign, fight, you know, make political decisions. So, yes, I mean, he really puts himself forward in his writings. Uh, Of course, in like uh, pieces like the funeral oration, some of the letters, or, like the discourse to Jacob, we have direct autobiographical accounts as well. He speaks about his childhood life, etc. But even in seemingly irrelevant texts, like the discourse on drunkenness and adultery, this was a rhetorical exercise based on Libanius. For example, in order to speak about the ultimate happiness, he says the mm. people who are in purple. Uh, so, for example, even there, you can see what his like uh, idea of perfect happiness is the imperial purple.
0: Right. I had the impression that, so there are a number of ways you can take that. So you can say, well, okay, it's a a gifted politician who's using, you know, his rhetorical abilities to, you know, promote himself um, in a narrow political way or, you know, ideological or whatever. I sometimes had the impression that it was almost a response to the rather dismal situation of his state and, you know, his culture, they knew that things were not going well. They knew that any minute the whole thing could collapse. And he was creating an idealized image of what, you know, of the best that their culture could produce, right, in terms of religion and learning and sort of being a gentleman and and a scholar who can go on campaign and all the like as a point of pride for them. Like he, here's, you know, our culture offers these kinds of ideals, and I'm going to kind of embody them in my own self representation to give you all a kind of point of pride that at least we have a leader like that. I, I was just getting the sense that he was doing that. Yeah, a,
1: but he also got criticized for the very same reasons that he oh, yeah, wasn't yeah. Most spending say, say time with it. literary studies. He shouldn't be engaged in theology.
0: I see like that that that's uh, a distraction from his real duties or yes, something like
1: exactly. that yes exactly and you see this in the discourse to Jacob in some of his letters mm. so uh, he apparently did receive criticism on that which of course he fights back you know of the its great fervor yeah But I also think that perhaps he also wrote so much, and of course, uh, I'm not the first person to think so, like the editor and the translator of the dialogue on marriage, Athanasios Angeli also suggests that, he also perhaps wrote as a comfort like for seeking solace, especially in difficult times. Mm. Uh, okay, you could also say that maybe he's also doing that because the difficult times are when he really needs to up his game, you know, defend and silence all the critics, etc. But for example, during the blockade of Constantinople by the I, he really wrote so many works. Yeah. Uh, so maybe uh, he also wrote this, you know, as an outlet.
0: In a certain sense, he was right. I mean, I don't think that there are, was much that he could do practically and even his long trip to the west was like from a practical political standpoint it was just a failure um but we do remember Manuel for the for his works and this kind of image that he projected um and similarly for his campaigns uh with Bayezid in asia minor why, why don't you tell us a little bit about that because Bayezid is about as close as Manuel gets to having a nemesis, like someone he really, really hates. But he's in this really complicated relationship with him. So tell, tell us who that is, and, and what Manuel says about him.
1: Okay, so Bayezid the First, also known as Yıldırım Bayezid or Bayezid the Thunderbolt in Turkish, is one of the early Ottoman sultans, and uh, he's the, not the only Ottoman sultan that Manuel had to contend with. But I would say that he's the chief one. Now, as an Ottoman ruler, uh, Bayezid was very uh, important uh, because he really had a very aggressive policy of campaign and he really did expand the Ottoman uh, state into what we would uh, call an empire. Hmm. So he conquered lots of land in Anatolia from other Turkish Emirates. He conquered lots of land in the Balkans. Uh, so uh, in this key, he was key as, uh, in this Ottoman expansion. Uh, Now, the thing is that Manuel and Bayezid, of course, were in a, a relationship of enmity as political rivals. Of course, you would expect that a Byzantine emperor and an Ottoman sultan would have some enmity or rivalry between them. But uh, when you analyze Manuel's works, like his letters, his dialogue with a Persian and many other ones, you you understand, I think, that Manuel and Bayezid had a personal relationship of hatred as well. Because Manuel doesn't exhibit... uh, This sort of hostility uh, towards other Ottoman rulers like Murad I, Mehmed I, uh, you know, Ottoman princes during the interregnum. He, of course, also calls them barbarians, etc. But you can see that he takes it to the next level with Bayezid. Hmm. And the thing is that these two were also personally acquainted, uh, because uh, now uh, Manuel, as the Byzantine emperor, was under the obligation to accompany uh, the Ottoman Sultan Bayezid to his campaigns, and he did that, for example. Uh, very soon after, he ascended the throne as the sole emperor. So, in 1391, uh, he had to leave Constantinople and join Bayezid on his Anatolian campaigns. And he technically served in the army of the Ottoman Sultan with his accompanying Byzantine soldiers. And of course, we have many sad and complaining letters from Asia Minor. He also says that, you know, Bayezid I drank a lot, he was very unhappy about it, and he always points out that Bayezid I was a very irrational man, he was extremely volatile, he kept changing his mind in the dialogue with the Persian, he also inserts lots of hints that Ottoman scholars do not also like him, and there was this very personal relationship. And at one point, for example, uh, the I also summoned Manuel and his brother Theodore and John seventh uh, to Ceres, uh, and then they met. And Manuel even claims that he was going to murder us there. Of course, I mean, the truth is, uh, you know, uh, right. under disputation, because this is what we learned from Manuel. But the next time Beazet summons him, for example, Manuel disobeys. And actually, this triggers this 8 year long blockade of Constantinople by Beazet. And after uh, Beazet is defeated by Tamerlane at the Battle of Ankara, and substantially he later dies, Manuel actually writes two celebrating pieces. One is an etopia of Tamerlane, like what would have Tamerlane said when he had captured Beazet. And even Tamerlane says, oh, you're so not worth it. I see that you were not a great man. And the other is a song. Celebrating the defeat and the fall of Bayezid, uh, so clearly, in addition to being political rivals, I think there was also a clash of personalities there, and for personal reasons as well. Manuel disliked Bayezid.
0: Yeah, I, all sources you get the sense that Bayezid was a pretty terrifying, <laughs> pretty terrifying character. Um, and but you know, I mean, he's building an empire. That I guess that's the appropriate you know personality to have. Uh, but it just didn't mesh with Manuel at all. Like, I just don't think they had any common points that they couldn't understand. Yeah, also,
1: so we don't know what happened, you know, uh, really, when they were in campaign, through no, the no. interpreters, what they were speaking, what happened.
0: Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, those details are very difficult. Uh, so I, I
1: think, think it's far. a really interesting relationship because I think Manuel is so personal about it. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. No, it, clearly he rubbed in the wrong way. Um, <laughs> so let's... Uh, uh, flip geographical orientation and talk about Manuel's famous uh, journey to the West. Uh, this is very celebrated, uh, you know, the only Byzantine emperor who went to uh, England, um, and he he wrote about it at, at length and, and, and his hosts also wrote about his presence there. So we have lots of Western sources that talk about Manuel um, and their impressions of him, you know, this kind of down and out but dignified figure from the East. Uh, So where did he go? What was he trying to accomplish? Um, And what texts did he write along the way? Why did he write those?
1: Okay, so this was also one of my favorite chapters, first in my dissertation, then in my book to write about. Uh, So in this very celebrated journey, uh, he set out from Constantinople, which was blockaded by the Ottomans in order to seek help against the Ottomans. Uh, As soon as, of course, this blockade starts, he starts corresponding with different European powers, like for example, Venetian Senate suggests to him that he should also correspond with France and England. Uh, And of course, through all these contexts, Uh, Western European rulers also do express an interest in helping him. Some of them start collecting money, like in England. Uh, Some Italian cities collect money. And the French king, Charles VI, also sends one of his famed generals, uh, Maréchal Boussisseau, to Constantinople to help uh, Manuel. And then it is also probably through the support of uh, this Maréchal Boussisseau that Manuel decides to visit different European courts in person. Uh, First, probably because they thought this would be more effective that way. Uh, Second, also perhaps to make a concession to John VII, his nephew who was also contended for the throne. Mm. So Manuel left John VII in Constantinople as a regent and he set out. And after a a brief break in the Moria, he then goes to Venice. He visits other Italian cities like Milan, uh, Padua. Pavia, then uh, through other cities, he proceeds as far as Paris. Uh, He spends uh, lengthy amounts of time there at the court of uh, Charles VI. Uh, We know that he was, for example, housed at the Palace of Louvre at the time. Mm -hmm. This is where he stayed. Uh, He actually attended uh, Christmas celebrations at the court. He was invited to the wedding of famous Jean de Berry, who was the uncle of the French king and the famous art patron, you know, the commissioner of Les Trevicheurs. And uh, he also then crossed over to England. Uh, So he visited Calais. He waited a little bit at Calais. Then he crossed to Dover. Uh, From there, he went to London and he went with Henry de Fourth. He stayed at the Elton Palace. Again, he celebrated Christmas there. He was given a lavish banquet. And uh, after a short time period, then he returns back to France. He stays there for quite a long time. And after the defeat of Bayezid, then he again makes his way back to Italy. And after again spending a little bit of time in Italy, he goes back to Constantinople. And in total, he almost stays for like three and a half years. So we are really speaking about a very lengthy journey. And of course, what he was trying to do is to convince various rulers to help him, not only in terms of money, but to send armies to Constantinople and uh, unfortunately, he never succeeds in this. Uh, I mean, he always obtains promises. Uh, you know, he writes in his letters, oh, the French king has given us excellent promises. Henry has given us excellent promises. I'm so hopeful. But none of them materialize. So at one point, Charles VI even decides that he is going to shine Mavisal Boussisot as the head of an army, etc. But it never materializes because uh, Boussisot is later appointed as the ge- uh, governor of Genoa. Hmm. Uh, so in terms of political benefits, uh, really there is none for the empire.
0: Yeah, in my history, I had to make a decision about this. And I decided to largely cut that trip out in part because, first of all, you and John have covered it very well from different standpoints, but also because I felt in the end it was a, like it didn't actually accomplish anything. It and And it also... So I chose to focus on John the Seventh, who was in Constantinople, um, and on the siege, um, and that it's almost like Manuel's journey has kind of like like look at me, look at me, look at me, and like we pay attention to this fascinating image of him writing Ecrasies of tapestries in the Louvre, but like the real history is going on with all the suffering in Constantinople, and so I just kind of chose to focus on that. But anyway, that's. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, but I
1: agree that in a big volume on the entire Byzantine history, it is a bit out of place. Yeah. Uh,
0: yeah but
1: yeah. I think it deserves like a fascinating narration on its own. It is. And yeah. also, I would like to add, uh, it is not only like Manuel's, you know, lack of persuasion or that this uh, mission was failed to, uh, you know, doomed to fail, but also we have to take into consideration that. Uh, Also, the political situation in different European, uh, you know, polities at the time is rather bad as well. In Italy, for example, we have the Visconti, we have wars, you know, interfighting between them. In France, uh, Charles VI is actually mad. Uh, So, for example, in Manuel's, during Manuel's visit as well, there are very long time periods when he's inactive and when his uncles are acting as regents. Mm-hmm. So they also have their own problems, like in England, for example, Richard II, with whom Manuel is corresponding with, has been ousted by Henry IV, who again has his own problems. He is facing rebellions, you know, he has to consolidate his power. Uh, so really, uh, you know, helping Manuel and the Byzantines, I don't think that it would really rank very high in anybody's agendas, because all of them are actually also internally occupied. Uh, Second, really, what is in it for them,
0: you know, because Manuel
1: doesn't have funds, etc. There is not really like much of a reward apart from prestige.
0: Yeah, I like, uh, actually, now that you mentioned prestige, um, I like uh, Cecily Hillsdale's account of, you know, Manuel and the West. And she stresses how um, he used classical culture as a sort of as a diplomatic asset. And maybe not so much during his journey. And I think you bring this out well that the things that he's writing, obviously, you know, in this complicated, difficult Greek, are not addressed to Westerners, obviously. Um, but his own subjects, his retinue, people back home, people like Crisoloras, and so on. But I think he understood that um, Western Europeans were eager to have classical culture and, and Greek manuscripts and things like this, and he exploited that later. He sent Crisoloras on all these missions and. Yeah, Yeah.
1: Uh, certainly. Uh, And for example, he also later on wrote to Guarino of Verona, suggesting that he could maybe translate the funeral oration into Latin or Italian. So uh, he wasn't too insistent and he didn't connect like lots of long lasting importance, uh, you know, bonds with French or Italian scholars he met. But he was also interested in reaching out there. The project never materialized, but he did want it, you know, if possible to be translated into Latin. Um, and of course, in Cristóvão de he found an excellent candidate, you know, as this, you know, the, you know, this great literati, you know, this uh, very cultured person. So, of course, he used them in all all of his diplomatic missions.
0: Yeah, and Christian de began to teach Greek in Italy, and yeah, you know, yeah. So it's it's one of those cultural assets that the declining East Roman Empire still had and could still give. Uh, just as um, I remember, Cecily talks about how. You know, Manuel was clearly understood that his relationships, for example, with the Slavic Orthodox world, were were premised on more liturgical and ecclesiastical basis, and and he used that too. Anyway, whatever. So we're almost out of time. I want to jump ahead to um, some questions that are about just some more personal questions about, like you and Manuel. <laughs> okay. Because you're, you're such an interesting pair, um, and. I don't think that Manuel would have imagined ever that a Turkish woman would have mastered Hellenic Pedia and understood sort of his cultural orthodoxy so well as to write this book about him, which represents him so very well. And to that degree, I think he would have been wrong. Like, you know, but that's that's, you know, looking far into the future from his standpoint. Um, and now writers tend to identify with their subjects especially that are writing biographies as you are so do you have any sort of personal reflections on just you know like how did you engage personally with this strange person I mean Manuel is a is an, is an odd person even in his own time right um, and he's certainly so to us today so yeah what, did you form any kind of imagined personal relationship with him as you we're writing this
1: I mean I would yes I would imagine like what was he like in actual uh, real life What did he look like? Of course, we have his manuscript uh, images, but, you know, what was he really like? And I, like you said, I always thought, even as a PhD student, if he knew about it, like, how would he feel about it? There is (laughs) this Turkish young woman uh, writing his biography, reading his text, analyzing him, and uh, I think he would have felt a certain uh, sense of pride. Of course, it would be very surprising to him, you know, this whole academia that we have today would be a surprise, uh, that, you know, at this of his Ottomans is writing a biography that I know Greek, it would be very interesting for him. Uh, but I also, uh, you know, uh, feel that uh, if we could, I, if like I could have met with him, uh, we could have spoken a lot about our shared interests. Like uh, I like, for example, some of the plays he enjoys, like Aristophanes' Belt or mm-hmm. Plato's Fido. I think these are some of the works he was especially fond of and I really like them as well. Uh, I enjoy Greek literature too. Uh, You know, so I think we had in common. Uh, We have some things in common uh, with regards to that. Uh, He likes to be active in, you know, different areas of the life. This is something that I like as well. But I also did wonder, like, how would he how uh, would have he felt about such a biography? And I was sometimes imagining because I also say, you know, oh, this is a self-representation. Here he's trying to shift the blame. He's trying to legitimize his decisions. And he would say, take this part out, you know, take <laughs> it out. The part where I was Thessaloniki, why don't you take it out?
0: <laughs> yeah, no, 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 for sure. <clears throat> uh, maybe, you know, 500 years gives you some perspective. <laughs> um, yes. I, I mean, you're also from the same city. This is uh, something, yes,
1: I also reflect upon. So especially yeah. whenever now I'm working around, uh, uh, you know, walking around the historical peninsula, I was like, this is where Manuel worked. When I'm, you know, uh, touring around the Ivan sarai Edwinakapa area, where we have the remnants of the Vlaherna Palace, it was Manuel's palace. Or Hagia Sophia, when I look at the Onfalion, where the emperors were supposedly the crown, I know that this is the exact spot he's still upon. So mm-hmm. it's it's really exciting.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It gives you goosebumps. And his corpus is so large that, honestly, there can't be more than half a dozen people alive today who have read it all, and even that might be too many. And so you're, like, if if, if he's thinking about his readership and someone who wrote that much clearly was, like, you're among very, very few people who have read everything that he wrote.
1: Yeah, I'm one of his biggest fans and an avid reader. Yes, yes and, and victims. True. His
0: prose sometimes is...
1: that's true that's
0: torture okay so final question if you could meet him today what would you ask him
1: now, this is going to sound extremely funny and very unscholarly, please, but I please. would really like to ask like, what his favorite foods were, <laughs> or like, what sort of clothes he was wearing. Uh, of course, these are trivial questions, yeah, I completely yeah, yeah. understand, but he never makes any references to food or to clothing items, and I'm really curious about it, because as a historian, I'm really interested in cuisine, food, and clothing. So I really wish, you know, I would know like what sort of food he liked consuming. Uh, Also, I'm curious about like the two daughters he lost. I'm curious about their names. I suspect one of them might have been named Eleni after the wife and the uh, grandmother. Uh, I would also ask him probably if he has other writings, which he might have, that we don't have, uh, you know, an edition of today. Maybe he wrote something and it didn't survive.
0: Sure. Okay. Those sound great. Um, and yeah, no, I'm fascinated by food and clothing too. I mean, I've done a number of episodes. Uh, it's just one of those, you know, kind of this curiosity about those things that our sources just rarely ever tell us about.
1: Yeah. In Manuel, we are very lucky in that we have a very, very small uh, instance when the historian Francis mentions that Manuel is giving uh, out clothes from his like chess mm. and he actually gives uh, Francis a robe as well and he describes it.
0: All right, Siren, thank you so much for coming on uh, to the podcast and for writing the book, which was immensely enjoyable and very useful uh, for me, because honestly, I, I, I wasn't going to read through all of Manuel's work. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't going to do, not for this, uh, but, but I'm glad that you did so. so
1: I'm glad you liked the book.
0: And uh, so what's next? Uh, what, what can we expect next?
1: Well, I mean, currently I have a Turkish book uh, waiting in the line to be published. It's a Byzantine poetry anthology from 4th to 15th centuries, uh, translations about approximately 60 poems from Greek to Turkish uh, with commentary. It is going to be a double text, Greek and Turkish facing each other. And of course, all of the poets will be introduced and explained. So this is one thing that hopefully will appear by summer, fingers crossed. Mm-hmm. And other than that, for the time being, I have put Manuel II behind me. Uh, and now I'm more interested in like notions of time in late Byzantine history writing. So I think this is going to be the next thing I will be writing.
0: Excellent. I look forward to those. And uh, thank you again. And then take care.
1: Thank you so much for having me here again. Bye.